welcome to another episode of Two Daves and a Doc and Guests. Today we are joined by, and I checked this out to make sure I wasn't going to butcher it. So welcome to our wonderful guest, Dr. Antoinette Cameron Imblet, um, all the way from, well, Ireland, right? So um, no, no. no. <laughs> See, I, I knew I was going to screw something up. So this is perfect. This we is are not the same. England and Ireland are not the same countries. We need to keep going up. Well, so for our audience, because I'm going to keep this in here because I have nothing but humility. Uh, I have nothing but humility and geography tends to be one of those things. I did not get this in the pre-brief, so it's all on you guys. That being said, (laughs) welcome from jolly England, I suppose. Um, This is the American that's screwing up geography. So all that's to be said. Welcome to Antoinette. We're glad you're here. By all extension, you are in England. The boys are in Ireland. I'm in America. What a international group of individuals we have here. Give us a little bit of history on who you are, why you're here, and why you agreed to talk with us this morning. Oh, gosh. With, without having some kind of existential crisis or something. Um, so... I have mine, so it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um yeah I'm Antoinette um I'm originally from Liverpool I live here in London now just to let you know Dave they're two different places in England just to clarify that god I'm not doing my PhD in something to do with geography so don't tell them about Wales don't tell them about Wales (laughs) don't even bring Wales into Um, so my background, I guess, in terms of research is that I recently completed a PhD in reproductive medicine and I specialize in um, a condition called Turner's syndrome, which affects one in every 2,500, uh, 2,500, no, uh, one in every 2,500 females born. Um, I'm also dyslexic and dyspraxic, hence why I can't say long numbers. Um, and now I work for a brilliant startup called Open Medical. Well, awesome. It's a really interesting, really interesting story. And, I, and I've shared your LinkedIn post recently with Dave and with Colin as well. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's probably not a bad place to start, bearing in mind that we connected on LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, on that. And you've now, I suppose, it, it's pretty amazing because communication is so important in our space. You know, whether it's we're talking about uh, supporting people around their health, whether it's around neurodiversity, whether it's just, you know, encouraging people to, 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 I suppose, just go and try and do the best that they can, whether it's in a PhD or whatever. But that was, that went pretty viral. And yeah. That would probably be a good way to put it. I think you've got like 160,000 uh, yeah. likes or reactions to it. Like, what, what does that mean? How important is communication for, for all of this type of thing? Communication in terms of like, from my perspective, as someone who was enabled to, basically write down how they felt or write down or read something and kind of I have a problem mentally reading things and processing it properly so it might take me like three days to read one page of a book and so doing that post was actually a massive thing for me to put it down and articulate it in a way that everybody else would be able to understand it as well. I'm very much a a verbal person and so um, the response out of that has been just amazing. I do on my side of things. I can see how many views that post has got around the world, and it's like six point three million or something. And the the 
I guess the big thing for me was how many people privately messaged and commented on it to say, I am also divergent and I work in research or I've done this amazing thing. I was told I was stupid at school and just having this amazing little community on the comments and a, a professor um, over in Japan messaged me or somewhere, can't remember where he's from actually and said, how how has this post become like the water cooler conversation of how weird our education was and what we were told and the limitations that were placed upon us by other people and so um yeah it's become you know something that just it was me just pouring my heart out basically just so if one person saw it and encouraged their son or daughter just be like this girl could do it you could probably do it too and then it's yeah hopefully it's uh, given a little bit of inspiration to other people I don't know if inspiration is the right word but no, it is yeah <laughs> I don't it seems a bit weird to say inspiration about something that you've done but like just a little bit of hope more than anything yeah and and representation like representation is very very important and that's what it is and you know yeah. you even mention in it from your history your background even something to say that the, your your Liverpool accent you know what I mean yeah. it's kind of like Imagine a scenario in which somebody would say you can't be a scientist because you have a Liverpool accent. It's just bananas. It's crazy. But I, I had so many situations going through education where people would be like, well, if you speak like you're stupid, then you are stupid, you know? And I just think, well, I speak like this because that's my background. That's my culture. That's, that's who I am. Um, yeah. So it's, it's weird it's for me it's all about little labels people can attach to you and how you address them and do you use it to your advantage or do you use it to your disadvantage you know and how you interpret it for yourself that's a very good question case, uh, Colin, on this one i just i'm curious and I'm, I'm curious as well from your side Colin, your experience on this one it's you know being able to post it like at the end of it is, is great we see lots of people doing that uh, but there's a lot of time and a lot of hardship that goes in and lots of effort all the way up through it for years even before probably a phd was on your mind uh, and going through that process and just for people listening who and, and again from all your perspectives I, i'm really curious uh, just even from my from my side is you know how do you go about it when you hear that for the first time and the second time and then the tenth time and, and so on like what is your thought process around that and how do you create that resilience that allows you to be able to step on it? What are the kind of key factors to be able to allow you to, to keep progressing and not to get stuck, I guess, like a lot of people do? Oh, gosh. No pressure, sorry. That's who, who wants to take that one first? <laughs> That's Antoinette, Antoinette, come on, go for it. Oh, me? No, 100%. 100%. Oh, gosh. I think that for me... There was never really, I think that because, bless my parents, like, because teachers told them, oh, well, Antoinette would be better at school if she just zipped her mouth, like if she just be quiet. And so that gave my parents the impression then that it, they didn't think I was not smart. They were like, she's very articulate. She can, she can do this and she can do that. But on paper, she just doesn't test well. And my parents kind of, address that early so I think that for, for me I didn't have that kind of pressure there for one 
I think parents can put a lot of pressure on kids and stuff like that. So they kind of left me to my own thing and they would just say, oh, well, do you want a tutor for this? And I would go, mm, it doesn't matter how many tutors you give me in that subject. I'm never going to be any good at it. Or um, just kind of, I always just kind of did what I, my eth like my philosophy is, if you look at something and you write it down on paper, what are you good at and how can you pursue that? And that's kind of how everything that I've done is all been organic and I've never, there's, there's no process to it. And if I failed at something, I would look at something and say, well, where did it go wrong and can I fix that? And if I can't fix that, then, you know, you, usually I can fix it. It's, it's something monumental's gone wrong. Like you didn't revise for six weeks, you idiot. So go, go back and hit the books or something. So, and if you do things organically and you do stuff that you're interested in, that you're passionate about, naturally you spark something that's within you and you go, no, I can do this. I, I can get up and I can fix this or go forward with this problem or whatever. So I think that it, it's really, I don't know. I don't know words to put around that. I hope that's not too much of a ramble. <laughs> No, it's kind of, it's very personal. You know what I mean? Everyone's yes. journey is very personal and you make it work. So from my background, that's what I kind of did. I had an, an early scenario. So I had special needs education when I was much, much younger. When I first started school, as I, we talked about before we began recording, it turned out I was a very lazy child, mm. did not like reading. So I was held back because of that. But mine was a specific situation. I had a special, uh, one of my teachers very early on, gave us pattern testing, you know, 11 plus sort of exams that I did to find out what are you good at. I'm very, very young. I was absolutely terrible at reading and number and like uh, words and that sort of stuff, but was astounding at numbers and logic and order. So that one little action from somebody else then kind of said, no, look, there's something in there. This can be useful. And then years of misery and stress from my loving mother pounding kind of words into my brain to get me to remember them and learn how to read them. But again, like as that went on, and I'm sure you'll probably agree there is, there's nearly an element of stubbornness. The most interesting person, people are always the stubborn ones, the ones that will just keep fighting no matter what. And I'm sure there's mm -hmm. an element of stubbornness that you probably had as well as, you know, in regard, you got to at some stage when yeah. you were like, no, I can do this. And then you'll just fight upstream. You nearly get yeah. into a stage of you enjoy the fight as much as you do the journey, you know, and... And, and as much that you don't even realize that you're fighting and everything is a fight, it's like, it's a fight for your life. It's not really a statistics exam. This is everything. It's it's everything all out on the line. I give it everything. And if I fail, I fail it this time. But if I pass, oh, the glory of it all, you know? Exactly. And even paths, so pathways through experiences. You probably had a very, very unique, different path compared to somebody else that might have studied the same thing in the same location over the same time period. You know, I think unfortunately in research and academia and, you know, PhDs in that case, an awful lot of people think that there's only one way to do it, mm. the standard traditional academic pathway. Whereas what I love is I love multitudes of pathways. My poor beloved wife says it all the time. I break her heart by saying, I have an undying need to find the answers to questions that haven't been asked yet, if that makes sense. <laughs> You know, I mean, so I love to be five steps ahead for situations that never will probably never happen. I like to have a plan. I like to have a ready. So whenever I'd seen scenarios, I love the different approaches. How can you get to the same place with loads of different approaches, different paths, different variables? 
And once you can find somebody and it sounded like you found a supervisor that was allowing you to tailor towards that, you can then create your own kind of journey going forward. But again, representation is important to make sure it's real and then the support from your kind of supervisor Mm. and everything. So how did you find that interaction as you were studying with your supervisor and how did they adapt to it and how did you adapt that process? to Yeah. Um, So my PhD was a little bit unique in the fact that I answered a job advert in, I can't remember, I think it was NHS jobs. And it said, this professor needs a research assistant um, specialising in Turner's syndrome. And I just finished my horrific 1.5 years of my master's probably the worst time of my life. That's when I just discovered I had dyslexia and dyspraxia because I um, uh, did a statistics module and failed it. So you can imagine the confidence, not so much. Oh, I can't even tell you. My confidence was just absolutely shot. I was like, why am I here? What am I doing? Every, every kind of question that you ask yourself. And then I was 25, so I'm sure I kind of had, you know, one of these early court life crises <laughs> that they talk about now. Um, so I answered this job advert and um, started working for Professor Conway at UCH, uh, d- d- basically reviewing patient records, uh, meeting the patients, understanding the condition, looking at the data. And after about a year I said to him well have you ever noticed that this specific subgroup of women have this kind of uh, epilepsy kind of feature and he was like oh really and I was like well yeah she's got it and she's got it and she's got it and she's like I, he was like I would never notice that because he was a doctor he's he's busy doing it he's very much a researcher as well but he in clinic that that was his job to be the doctor right so after that, he kind of, I can remember um, walking through the building of UCH and it was me and the other research assistant as well. We walked through the building. He was like, Angela, how would you feel about like doing a PhD one day? And I was like, me, a PhD? <laughs> Could not believe it. And so I think it was this combination of, I felt like I was an expert already within the field of Turner syndrome. I, I, at that point, I probably met more women with Turner syndrome than some doctors who specialize in the field, which is incredible. So I had this this uh, weird thing or well, this magical thing of right place, right time, right people and going home and asking my partner like, well, I don't even think I asked him. I said, Professor Conway offered me a PhD today, a part time PhD. And he was like, OK, so when do you start? And I, <laughs> he's like, well, you've got to take it. You've got, you've got to, like, when do you ever get given that opportunity? And so, um, as, as you guys have discussed previously on the podcast, you ruminate on it for a long time. It then takes about a year to do the paperwork sometimes, access funding, all of this kind of stuff and set it up. So I wasn't a full-time PhD. I was a part-time research assistant, part-time PhD student very much identified as a researcher as opposed to a PhD student uh, because of the way my work was set up and yeah he just he he let me fly he let me direct what I wanted to do 
it was very dynamic and free flowing. I would take ideas to him. He'd be like, I think you're barking up the wrong tree or encourage me to research and um, further. And so I never even knew you could set up a PhD like that. I always thought it was a structured program. They don't tell you that you can basically find a supervisor, find some money and get on with it you know, when you're doing your master's or your undergrad and stuff. So it, it was all right place, right time, right person. And he was, because he was a doctor, had a lovely, calming manner about him as well. And very, yeah, caring as well and encouraged me. Good. You found a diamond. Oh. That's it. It's nice. Oh, d absolute diamond. We're on still in... One, uh, on this one as well, um, you mentioned... And I'm kind of cheating here because I'm using what you said prior to it. Um, <laughs> prior to coming on, you mentioned that you didn't identify as a PhD student until right at the end, which I think is really interesting. I'm curious to know, like, you know, why that was and, and maybe, you know, what is it like yeah. now that you've kind of come to that kind of conclusion of it all? Yeah, because I was when I was working as a research assistant, I had like one student who was who I was supervising for. So I was kind of playing that hybrid role even though I didn't really recognize it but more I think more interestingly um in my family I my uncle was a professor um, not a professor that's a lie he was a doctor <laughs> of economics at Oxford University so he was meant to smart first of all and he was a great person really like uh, you could communicate with him about anything and he could just untangle something for you and put it in lay terms so you could understand it so for me he was the pinnacle of smart for me only smart people did phd like my uncle you know he was fantastic fantastically smart man very intellectual so for me i always had that mind block and being dyslexic and being dyspraxic and almost being from a regional area I always had all these kind of like labels that I'd already attached that people had attached to me and then I'd kind of clinged on to as like some kind of security blanket and so it wasn't until I'd finished it and the night before I did my Viva I cried a lot it was very emotional and I couldn't pinpoint it and I kind of, oh, it's really cheesy. I was like, I'm crying for the, the little tiny person inside of me who was called stupid their whole life. And I think that's where it all comes from, being told you're a specific way your whole life. I, it led me to not really understand the achievement that I'd done, the things that I was, was doing, presenting around the world and talking to these really renowned doctors and stuff. I just it feels like an alternate like universe and life now you know yeah yeah and you got to the end and you got to look back on it like a like a viewer or like a watcher and it yeah all exactly ahead. exactly and the point you said about identifying not identifying as a as a like a phd student i can relate with to that fully as well like and it's it's rare that I, I've, I've not met many people that have identified the same way. I was the same. I went, as you did, working as a research assistant as a re and a researcher into working on my own project that I'd identified and secured the funding for. So it wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't doing anyone else's work. I was researching work that I'd worked on for years previously. And yeah, I never really identified as that student kind of learner. I viewed it as a more intensive 
focused research project that just had a thesis at the end of it. And like, that's a really, really interesting kind of approach. And I think it's because you said you'd identified your own problem. You'd identified this presentation of Turner syndrome in the cohorts of all of these individuals. So you were the impetus of it. You were the owner of it. And then your supervisor was just helping you get across the line. So I mean, that is, that's, that's quite rare. And I'd say it's probably very, very rare in the medical field. So, you know what I mean? Is how did you balance that kind of, you know, you're a practical researcher and now you're in this kind of PhD experience because both have very different dynamics. Did you find any conflict in there or any issues with one butting heads with the other or, you know, anything in that space? About yeah, it? sometimes I found it really hard to say where the, where the researcher in me ended and where the clinical side of me began because I didn't really have a clinical side. I'm not a doctor, but I deeply care about the people that I work with who I'm trying to benefit their lives. And so when I was signing up people for like research and stuff, sometimes I'd be like, oh, do I feel comfortable that I've just signed that person up for research or, oh, I hope they don't want to take part, you know, or something like that, even though they said yes and they were engaged and happy, you know, sometimes you wonder, oh, did I manipulate them into that? Or I I did have a lot of like internal conflicts with regard to that. And then also I had this really weird issue of the fact that I'm not a doctor operating in a medical space. And so I would get um, parents and girls who would see me before they saw their doctor and they would open up to me more than their doctor. And so they'd be like, well, my cycles are a bit weird or I'm worried about this or this smells. And I'd be like, okay, we need to, are you going to tell the doctor? And they'd be like, well, I just get embarrassed or something. I said, okay, I'll go and have a word with them and then you won't have to worry about it. So I, you know, or I have junior fellows ask me, oh, what kind of HRT would you recommend? Mm. (laughs) And it's like, sometimes I was, you know, it's almost a shame that people like that aren't operating in medicine where we could actually give some of our expertise. I'm not saying we should be able to, don't give us prescription pads or anything like that, but you know, we do have some medical knowledge and some usefulness in that space and but obviously we're not medically trained and so that was always quite difficult for me where where does one half of me end and the other begin yeah 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 and you know you've shifted over a little bit as well into a space so you're now working as an innovation uh, coordinator within a a startup world and you can see there your fancy startup background that, that you're in uh, at the moment, you know, which we're all missing because we love a bit of startups. But what's that transition like? I know you're, you're kind of early days on that, but like what's kind of drawn you into that world? Is that one of those other, you know, your right place, right time type of things? Or was that something that you set up in your mind to do? Um, do you know what? It was interesting. Somebody called me out the blue and said, I'd really like to interview you for this. It, it was not this company. It was a different company. Uh, I'd like to interview you for this uh, position in a startup company. And I was like, startup company? What What the hell would somebody want me in startup for? And it wasn't until I realized that startup companies have a big emphasis, not just on your background in terms of education, but on your soft skills, like being able to communicate, time management, um, being a good team player and maybe having a bit of character to you know, bring to the team almost or something. 
And so that led me on this route of looking into startups and Open Medical particularly appealed to me because they're a it's run by clinicians it's created by clinicians they've got the NHS at the center of everything that they do and they they really believe in what they do and that's just that's just exactly how I you know protect the NHS (laughs) at all costs help the NHS run efficiently and uh, yeah what's not to love about that and being able to operate in that space yeah. And then did you find even like, again, a very, very distinct, you know, gear change from the world of academia and medical research into now the faster paced startup land? Did you find any kind of it, it's a border that all of us on this call now have like jumped between over the years, you know, from startups to corporates to academia and back mm-hmm. and forth. And I know the two guys and myself work in this kind of hybrid space between all three. So did you mm-hmm. find any any like big tonal changes or big shifts or big difficulties in making that transition? Because I know it's not a traditional approach for somebody that's just finished the PhD. You know, you do a postdoc or you do a research fellowship or you get a lectureship position, but more and more common people are shifting now into this fast paced land and startup land. How did you find the transition? I think that in terms of like pace, et cetera, I think I found it okay because I've always been the driver of my own ship so I'm very much used to that and what I liked about it more than anything is that in the startup world you haven't really got people breathing down your neck it's more collaborative there's not there is a hierarchy but everyone's like really casual about it and uh, you know it's much more a meeting of minds more than anything what actually I did struggle with was going into a clinical research position that I was in very briefly, we won't say the organization or anything like that, but um, I actually struggled more so there because my mind was thinking, how can I make this better? What would I do to improve this system? And then that's when I realized, when I got that call from the startup company uh, that I didn't um, work for in the end was actually my mind's more in tune of how can we make this better? this project is running too long. Why is this process taking so long and doing this? And you, sometimes you can't change a system that's already in place. Mm-hmm. And so that's the exciting thing about like working in innovation and R&D and startups and all of this kind of fantastic stuff, which I never would have even considered when I finished my PhD. It's only been like, I think I made the decision like two months ago to work, <laughs> to work in startups and here I am now. <laughs> And it's going well. Yes, it's going fantastic. Dave, on that, have you noticed like a similar like side? Because you're coming in obviously from from corporate side into and now kind of shifting into research. Would that be a similar like side from from what you're seeing there as well? Yeah, I think uh, you know, given all of our guests that we've had over over the period of time, it's been very interesting to see where those kind of intersections happen. So a decade ago, as part of an innovation little hub inside of well, EMC Corporation, right? They had a technology ventures group. And so it was like this little incubator inside, which was great. And so I got a little taste of that. And I went from there into a startup, right? So I did the startup, the Silicon Valley startup, and it failed. (laughs) You know, so six months in, I'm like, oh, that's my last paycheck. That sucks. You know, and and you kind of go through that. But coming back around from this side, going back into this and having met y'all and worked with you on, on a couple of 
larger projects. Yeah, it's 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 that kind of interesting dynamic where corporate almost seems slow. And and Antoinette and I completely agree with you. It's that why are we doing things this way? There is so much so much more that we could be doing with you know X. You know we could make this better. We could do this and wanting to not shortchange your process, but make it more efficient or figure out better ways to do this and answer more questions. And that's, you know, and as David and Colin know, that's why I got back into this as well. Long conversations with Colin in a car bound from dairy, <laughs> you know, being, being one of them. Yes. I know that's in Northern, Northern Ireland. That's Northern Ireland. Just oh, so shut up. <laughs> I got that part. <laughs> well, at least that's smart. I can you know, go across the Irish sea. It's where I have problems evidently. So the, uh, the, so all that to be said, yes, that, David, yes, I, I do recognize that from that side. And so coming into academia, especially coming into our program, right, where you have that emphasis on um, innovation, inclusive design, and that kind of social trans socially transformative aspect, you know, that, that becomes exciting because you feel like you're able to use, I'm able to use the immense tool set of my corporation and apply it to something that actually makes a difference here and now or should make a difference here and now. So, yeah. And I think that's what makes a difference between like a good PhD and a bad PhD, right? Because you have got to have that passion. That's the first thing that I heard in your voice then when you started to talk about that was passion. And you have got to have that in spades because that is going to get you through the late nights, uh, the early mornings. I think because I was finishing mine during lockdown um, I was going to bed at 10, pretending to sleep when my husband went to sleep. Then I would sneak up an hour later, creep into the living room and start working till about 4 a.m. And then I would creep back into bed for an hour, you know. So, you, you know, you're exactly right. Like, you've got to have that kind of dynamic passion and really get into it. Yeah, as much as I like point. to poke at people for, you know, I... I uh, I get on there, you know, you, you're right about the whole passion thing. And, you know, you can be passionate about Heidegger. I'm never going to be passionate about Heidegger. That's, that's, that's something that is so far removed from what I ever want to do in my life. But I got on a call, I think for one of the orientation calls for UCD and somebody was on like, yeah, and I'm going to study this and it's Heidegger. I'm like, okay, you know what? I can respect the passion I see behind those eyes, right? At this moment, <laughs> I can never do that. But if you're going to wake up every morning and read that, that individual, and you're going to find something that's worthwhile out of that for you, then awesome. Go for it. And that's, you know, that's one of those kind of awakening moments. Yes. Uh, okay. If you have passion and you're able to follow that path and that's something that you'll wake up every morning, go to bed in the evening, wondering about what this does for your world and do it because there's nothing better at that point. I think. I think you're 100% right, Dave, and Antoinette on those. And I, I was so disappointed recently because I saw this, um, it popped up my LinkedIn feed, and it was one of the kind of eminent startup leaders, as we would, of the, of the world. And they were, the, of course, it was a clickbait title, and it was, you know, the worst advice that you'll ever be given. And they got up and they basically said, you know, when someone says, follow your passion, that's the worst thing they could ever tell you. And for me, I, I was looking through the comments and I saw people that I was following, and they were, you know, agreeing with this. And I just felt a bit sad because that to me is, is so crucial. Like you can see how the world is going in lots of different ways because people are not following passions and they don't have that human element 
involved in it. All they're seeing is figures and numbers and all that, which is, you know, one aspect of the world and has to go down that way. But I actually believe that it is this passion and this drive that helps you to make these positive changes out the far end of it. And that, you know, when it comes down to maybe when you're, you know, feeling not so great about things, that it, that's a little thing that helps you over the hump when you're, when you're stuck, when, you know, you feel, oh man, this is, this is rough. But at least you've got that little spark that kind of just jolts you along and keeps it, keeps it going. And I don't know what you think about that perspective of like, you know, don't follow your passion, which I, to me, almost shocked me. Oh, I could never do that. I mean, I worked in a bank for a couple of years and I did not have a passion for banking. One, because I'm dyspraxic and I kept losing all the money. <laughs> kept, you know, hitting the wrong button and stuff on the computer and they would be like, Antoinette, your till's down a thousand pounds. How is this possible? One thousand for me, But yeah, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine um, going to that job every day and I was really really fortunate that when I said I wanted to do my master's and I got accepted at Imperial which I'll never know I must be really good at writing personal statements or something um but they basically said I asked him you know I got accepted and he's like I'll support you we can do this I think he told me like I had 50 quid to my name at the end of the month after I paid for everything but you know uh, he's like, I couldn't watch you do another waitressing job or try and get into something. He's like, your mind just isn't like that. He, but that was even before I even knew I could even do a PhD. You know, he having that it goes back to that support network again, doesn't it? Whereby you've got to have good people behind you, people who believe in you even if it's just like the occasional pat on the back, just to say, stop crying, get on with it. You know, you, you go to bed, wake up tomorrow or, you know, it can be as little as that and it'll push you through the next stage and then the passion comes into it as well. Yeah, I think what you mentioned, it's, it's like, it's honesty. You know, the mm -hmm. best thing is honesty. And you mentioned it and to, to compare the two, the post David was talking about, I know the one and they're super common in Silicon Valley and they're like, don't follow your passion because it's not a great way to make money, make your money and then go and, you know, it's, it's that poisonous Silicon Valley kind of tech bro billionaire kind of culture that, <laughs> that you know, hasn't served humanity terribly well yeah. yet and probably won't. won't. But I think if you compare that to the, your LinkedIn post we talked about earlier on, you have more passion in the first sentence. And these people put in a full, you know, letter to, you know, epitaph nonsense that they write. And that's the stuff I think that we're missing. That's missing in academia. Mm -hmm. That's missing in the stand of startups. You follow your passion because you want to make the world a better place, not become a billionaire or not be lauded with titles or mm -hmm. awards or any of that. Just do some decent work that makes yeah. you happy and makes you sensible. And I think that's the kind of, that's the bit that I got most from you is that passion, you know, is, you yeah. want to do something that keeps you happy and helps all of these other people and you will find a way to make it work yourself. You know, that's the kind of any of the setbacks you've had feed that ability to find your way. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I just, I couldn't imagine why would you ever tell people not to follow a passion? <laughs> I just, it strikes me as bizarre like my husband loves construction. I would never tell him quit construction and go and do, I don't know, build new houses, I, you know, new builds. It's not what he does. He does 
skyscrapers and all kinds of mad stuff like that. I would never tell him to go and quit his job because he could make new builds and make more money or something. I just, it's incomprehensible in my brain. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's the same, and I think we're all very kind of similar in that way. Yeah. There's more interesting questions to be answered when you don't follow that path. Mm. They might not bring you anywhere, but when you get to the end of it, you'll have created something. So it's even a point that mentioned you. I'm sure everyone has seen that you know the PhD diagram, you know, with the little bump in knowledge. Have you seen that one before? Oh the- no. Uh, we we posted up somewhere, so if people don't know, it's like a big. We need to get like a, a bump of- clicker for uh, exactly, uh, for Colin. Yeah. Something every every like, time he's on, he's mentioned this little bump. We've got to like get a little yeah, picture in the corner. Yeah, this little bump, like this thing, like a big diagram of all the world's knowledge and your work just gives a little bump on the outside of it. You probably, think, you probably remember seeing it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I think, is, I, you described something similar in a previous episode. <laughs> so I just... Yeah, that's, that's the, 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 the bump trigger. We'll put a little pop here. up somewhere. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, you become an expert in that little tiny field, but that's then... True. For me, I tell you a funny thing, right? I didn't realize what I was doing. I just, um, it took me, God, an awful long time to publish my first paper out of my PhD. And I was writing my PhD and writing my papers at the same time. And so um, I wrote my first paper. I think it took me like 18 months or something. And by that time, I was like, I don't want to see this. I don't want anything to do with it, blah, blah, blah. So I went um, on holiday, as you do, because you've got all the free time in the world as a PhD student. Boys, you need to take advantage of that working remotely situation. And basically went and relaxed. And I got an email when I was away. And it was, it was dear Dr. Pimlet, and obviously I wasn't a doctor at all. And it said, I just wanted to uh, send you a, a warm, happy thought. I was like, what the about uh, the impact your paper has made in Chile. I was like, what the hell? He said, uh, a woman has just presented at such and such weeks and had a baby girl with Turner syndrome. Thanks to your paper, she will now be included in the Chilean healthcare system and receive the best possible care in the world. I bawled my eyes out. I was like, that little girl, because of my, my, stupid paper is now in a healthcare system where she's going to be looked after she the doctor saw the presentation had just read my paper went bang this is Turner's syndrome and now hopefully she's living a, a lovely wonderful life with with Turner's syndrome and doing really well you know that's amazing. Oh, I think that is a perfect way to end. I think that, that's this. we can't really talk about anything else after that. Do you know what I mean? That's that's sorry. the perfect ending point. Anything else afterwards will be nonsense. I'm so sorry. I think I think I think Antoinette, we need to get you back because obviously there's there's a lot there. I think there's an element of empathy that we would love to touch on. So at some point in the future, it will be really interesting to look at that because I think that is like a, a theme going through it. But I mean, you know, I, I think on, on that note, it's it's like a perfect way to to hand it over to, to Dave. It's an amazing story. Yeah. I oh, think, yeah. well, thank you for having me. And uh, well, I'll, anytime you guys want to chat, love it. <laughs> we keep, we keep on saying that. We just need stage. to keep, yeah. uh, actually invite people back. We've, we've said this several times. So I mean, <laughs> this time we won't confuse me with dates and times. Right, Mr. <laughs> uh, 
I'm, I'm sorry. Back. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, it's, you know, you, Dayton's and Times, me, evidently, geography. And on that note, <laughs> thank you to Antoinette for, for joining us this morning. It's it's a, certainly an honor and a pleasure from our from our end to have you on. We appreciate your passion and your, your drive and motivation. Got some great information out of this today, and hopefully our listeners will. Um, pay attention you know, and adopt this for themselves as well, right? Not letting labels or, you know, any kind of uh, anything hold them back, you know, pursue their passions and, and kind of follow through with that. So from all of us and you to our audience, thank you. And we look forward to hearing from you guys in the next episode. Thanks. <laughs>